Welcome, welcome, all of you who are stuck here. <laughs> welcome, glad to have you. It is good to be with you. It is good to be home. Um, I'll, I'll say this very quickly about our trip to Israel. It was something else. You know, I was afraid that I'd build it up so much in my mind that I was going to have this letdown moment. We were, I was, certainly not let down in any way. Um, and I'm going to try not to talk about our time in Israel all the time. So, just so you know that, I'm going to try not to do that, but uh, what a blessing. It, it was a tremendous blessing to be there, and I highly recommend that. We, uh, something I'd looked forward to for a long, long time, and to be able to do it, it was real a blessing. Hey, I want you to think back to when you were just a little kid, playing in a playground, maybe at school, maybe in a park somewhere, and I want you to remember all of those unwritten rules and all of those unscripted uh, sayings that it seems like every kid on the playground just somehow knows. You know, all, all across America, it seems, there's these sayings and there's these little poems, these little things that kids just kind of know for some reason. Uh, for instance, how did you decide who was going to be it when you were playing a game of tag? And I don't, know if this is, I don't know if this is universal or not. In Pennsylvania, we'd all get in a circle and somebody would say, my mother and your mother were hanging up clothes. Anybody else hear that? Okay, okay, another Pennsylvanian over here. Maybe that just speaks to how messed up we were in Pennsylvania. Because everybody knew it. And the next line went, my mother punched your mother right in the nose. I'm like, who teaches that to little kids? Right? But every kid on the playground knew it. You know, you get arrested today if you went around saying that. But we all knew it. That's how you decided. You, that means that you are not it, you know. Or if you're with some friends and you wanted to make your buddy really mad, you'd say something like, Timmy and Martha sitting in a tree. Okay, we're on this one, right? K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Timmy pushing a baby carriage, and then you fight, right? That's how that goes, yeah. And then, of course, if you're playing hide-and-seek, the person who's doing the, the seeking, you know, leans up against a wall or a tree, and they count to 20, whatever it is, and when they get to the end of the count, they say, apples, peaches, pumpkin pie, who's not ready, holler I. Does that sound familiar? Does that make it down to... No. What did you guys do? In the flood there? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then you're right. Actually, in Pennsylvania, we didn't give anybody a chance to holler I. Because as soon as we said, apple speeches, pumpkin pie, who's not ready, holler I, ready or not, here I come. Okay, thank you. Ready or not, here I come. And that saying, ready or not, here I come, it actually sort of follows you through life, doesn't it? You think about times and events in your life, especially those major events in your life, those circumstances, those jobs, schooling, relationships, marriage, children. Ready or not, here I come. You know, aging, eventually death. Ready or not, here I come. And I wonder if we ever really do feel ready for those major events. I wonder if we ever really feel ready. Oh, I am so ready to get married. I am so ready to be a parent. 
Now, we always have these, uh, these questions and doubts and, and sort of reservations, right? We've been talking at length about us as 21st century Christians trying to live like those 1st century Christians did in the aspect of being devoted to the same things that they were devoted to from Acts 2.42, devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And I think all of us would agree that's, that's who we want to be. And that's where we want to go. But I think there might be some hesitancy for some of us, maybe quite a few of us, to say, okay, but I'm really ready to go all in. Because devoted, that's a big word. Uh, That's a commitment. And and I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to be devoted. But here's the thing. Jesus loves people who will say yes, even when they're not sure they're ready. He loves that. He loves people who will answer him with a yes, yes, Lord, yes, even when they might not feel quite ready. There's there's a great story in Scripture at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, a famous story. In fact, it's like top three, maybe, uh, of uh, famous uh, uh, quotes of Jesus in Scripture. It's probably the second most memorized passage in Scripture. And I think it's a story of people that aren't quite ready. Jesus has already been crucified. He has been raised from the dead. He's about to ascend back into heaven. And he tells his apostles this in Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus gives this incredible assignment, this commission. We call it the Great Commission. And he begins by saying, all authority has been given to me. And this idea of all keeps resurfacing in the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. I want you to go to all nations, to all people. I want you to make disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them all things that I have commanded you. And then I am with you all the time. All the days to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to go. But I think it was given to people who maybe weren't quite ready to go. And the first little hint that maybe we get of this is that word, 11. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Now, we don't think a thing about that word, 11. It's just a number. We do the simple math. It was 12, and then Judas is gone. He's committed suicide after betraying Jesus. So, yeah, it's down to 11. We don't think about the number 11. Those first century readers, that number would have stood out to them. It would have leapt off the pages to them. Those people in first century, and before that especially, they put a great deal of emphasis on numbers. Numbers were important to them. And they assigned different meanings to numbers. They were fascinated with numbers. For instance, the the number three to to the ancient people meant a holiness. There was something holy about the, the number three. 
You know, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Um, there were three sections of the temple. The blessing of God was holy, holy, holy. He said it three times. The number four was related to creation and, and nature. The four directions, east, west, north, south. The four dimensions, height, width, breadth, length. Uh, uh, the four corners of the world. You add those two together, three and four, that equals what? Seven, very good. It's an important number in Scripture, right? You multiply those two together, three times four, twelve. Again, a really important number to the ancient world. It represented the, the, the connection of what was holy and nature, you know, creation and God. Number 12 was a revered number in the ancient world. In fact, take a concordance sometime and just look up how many times the number 12 appears in the Old Testament. It is a staggering amount. It really is. There's 12 loaves of bread in the temple. There are 12 gems on the, the, the priestly tunics. Uh, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel represented a completeness, represented a wholeness, not the fractured tribes. That, that's, that wasn't good. But those 12 tribes, uh, the lunar calendar had 12 months on it. Then you jump to the book of Revelation, and the number 12 is everywhere. The city that John sees has 12 gates with 12 pearls, the pearly gates. Uh, that city is set on 12 different foundations, guarded by 12 angels. There's a tree with 12 types of fruit on it, one for every month of the year. People in, in early Israel, they, they loved the number 12. It was a number that represented completeness, wholeness, perfection. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus chose 12 apostles. I really don't. But then you get to Matthew chapter 28, and Matthew tells us that there's only 11 disciples. It's not a good number. Yeah, Judas is gone, we get it, but to them, that's not complete. That's not whole. That number's missing something. It's a wrong number, not enough. And then, not is it just a wrong number, but Matthew says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, I've got to admit, we don't know what to do with this verse. We really don't. When they saw him, talking about the 11, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I've heard people try to explain this verse in a lot of different ways. When I was growing up, I always heard, well, they doubted it was Jesus because they saw him from afar. It was a distance. So they didn't quite recognize Jesus until they got closer. But that's not what Matthew says. And that explanation doesn't exactly fit the context either. What Matthew says is, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now remember, Matthew is there, okay? He's one of the eleven. I don't know if Matthew was one of the ones who doubted or not. He doesn't say. But Matthew's not trying to hide anything. He's really being transparent of what's going on with these guys, with this interaction that they're having with Jesus. And before we're too quick to sort of, you know, really condemn these eleven, think about it for a minute. He'd been with Jesus for, for years now. They saw some pretty amazing things. They heard some pretty amazing teaching. And then Jesus is crucified, and they know he's dead. But then Jesus is brought back to life, and they know he's alive. You know, how do you wrap your mind around all that? 
Think of putting yourself there. Man, I, I, I'm not sure what I believe. I mean, I know what I know. I know what I've seen, but I got some doubts. I still got some questions about this thing. That's the group that Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world. That's the ones who received first the, the Great Commission. The number 11, you know, kind of limped. It's not perfect like 12. The church that Jesus sends into the world, it's kind of 11-ish. It's imperfect. A little bit fallible. But Jesus doesn't say, let's get the numbers right first and, and then go. And he doesn't say, get the faith thing perfect and then go. Jesus says, I want you to get the obedience thing and go. I want you to go. We'll work on the numbers. We'll work on the faith. But ready or not, I want you to go. And of course, you see this all through the Bible. All through Scripture, God calls someone to do something. And I can't think of a single time when someone responds by saying, what great timing, God. <laughs> yes. You asked me at the perfect time. I am so ready for this. This, this task that you're giving me, it is so in my wheelhouse. I, I'm like, I'm the perfect man for this. I'm the perfect woman to do this. Thank you for asking me. No one says that. Remember God comes to Moses and said, I want you to go to Pharaoh, demand to let my people go. Remember what Moses said? Uh, but, 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 but I, 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 you know, I, I don't talk good. It's not going to work, God. I'm not ready to do that. He goes to Gideon, says, I, I want you to liberate my people. Gideon says, I'm, uh, I'm like from the least clan of all. I'm, my family's like the least of Manasseh. I can't do that. He goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to start a whole new community with you. Remember Abraham's response? Can a son be born to a man who's 100 years old? It's not going to happen. He goes to Jeremiah. You know, Abraham says, I'm too old. Jeremiah says, oh, Lord, I'm but a boy. Jeremiah says, I'm too young. You might be thinking about, what about Isaiah? Because Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. He did. Isaiah also said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst people of unclean lips. Read the book. Isaiah feels very inadequate to do what God is calling him to do. Now, Esther is called to stand up for her people. She tells her uncle, I'll probably get killed. This is not a good idea. In the New Testament, Jesus has a conversation with a rich young ruler. And Jesus says, here's what you need to do. You need to sell what you have and follow me. That young man told Jesus, I'm not ready to do that. I got too much. Ruth is invited into this grand story. Her problem's just the opposite. There's a famine going on. She doesn't have anything. Saul, the first king of Israel, Samuel comes to anoint him, and Saul says, I, I'm not your guy. Uh, I'm the least in my family. And then when Samuel actually begins to anoint Saul, you remember, they couldn't find him. He's hiding out in the baggage. All these people, too inarticulate, too weak, too old, too young, too rich, too poor, too dangerous, way too much baggage. These are the people that God called. None of them said, okay, God, I feel ready. 
I'm glad you asked. But again, here's the thing. God loves using people who don't feel like they're ready. God loves using people who might not be ready because feeling like we're ready isn't really the indicator of being ready. God loves, we trust him. God says, I want you to trust me. But you'll never know if you don't go. You just, you won't know unless you go. So God comes along and he says, would you take a risk? Would you step out on faith? Would you love someone? Would you connect with someone? Would you volunteer? Would you serve? Would you share with people what you have? Would you share with people what you know? Will you be devoted to these things? Will you go? Will you make disciples? Now, the truth about us, we're always ready to give an answer as to why we're not ready, right? We always have reasons why we're not ready. Because for us to feel ready, we want every single question answered in such a way that success is guaranteed. That's when I'll feel ready. When I know I can't fail, when I've got every scenario figured out and every single question answered, then I'm ready. But again, only God knows if we're ready. God knows more than we do. God knows we're kind of 11-ish. God knows we have doubts. But God says, I want you to go. And notice he doesn't say, go, you're ready. Jesus' message is, go, I'm ready. I'm going to be with you. You're not going to be alone. Jesus says, I'm going to, I'm going to be with you, but you've got to go. Even if you're not ready. See, here's the truth about us. And I'm not sure it's true about everybody that we know and you go to work with and, you know, school and, and those kind of things. But here's the truth about us. We would never tell God, not ever. God gives us a direct command, a, a challenge. I don't think anyone here would tell God, no, not ever. What we tell God is, not yet. It's going to be a yes someday, but not today. I can't today. Not yet. I want you to think about your life. What area in your life you know you need to tell God yes, but you've been telling him not yet. Not right now. Some other things I've got to take care of. Maybe it's a big thing. Maybe it's a small thing. But Jesus wants us to go. 11-ish. He gets it. Doubting. He gets it. But he wants us to go. Interesting story in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is having some conversations with some different people about following him. And Luke records it this way. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. 
Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What area in your life have you been telling God, not yet? It's not a no, it's just a not yet. God, I understand what you're expecting, and I understand what you're asking, I understand the blessings, but I've got some family issues I've got to deal with first. I've got some obligations that I've got to take care of, but once that's taken care of, then it is a yes. It is a yes. Now, where in your life have you been saying not yet instead of I'll go? Maybe it's a financial thing. And I bring that up because this is, this is so seductive in our world. You know, I'm, I'm going to be generous. But first I've got to make some money. <laughs> as soon as I get my finances lined up, then I'm going to be generous. I've had people tell me that. Well, I can't be generous now because I'm not making enough money. But once I do, once I get my portfolio figured out a little bit, then I'm going to be generous. This is so peculiar about us. We give ourselves credit for being generous with our money, with our time, with our efforts. We give ourselves credit for that even while we're hoarding the very things that we say we're going to be generous with. Here's the deal. We judge other people based on outward behavior. We judge ourselves based on our noblest intentions. Even if those intentions never get realized. In other words, I'm going to judge you by what you do. By your behavior. But I'm going to judge myself by my intentions. My noblest intentions, which may never happen. But that's how I'm going to see myself. Uh, I'm not going to say not ever to God. I'm just going to say not right now. Not yet. And it's such a strange thing. And I think to a certain extent we all do this all the time. You know, we think of ourselves as being loving, right? We're loving people. And yet we do things that aren't very loving. And we see ourselves as being uh, someone with a volunteer spirit. But we don't volunteer for anything. And we see ourselves as being someone who serves others, but the truth is, we don't serve anybody. We see ourselves as we're concerned about the lost. But outside of here, people in our lives don't even know there's a spiritual side to our lives. We see ourselves as we're devoted to the things that we read about in Acts chapter 2. But we're not really devoted to the teaching of the apostles. We're not really devoted to fellowship, breaking of bread. We're not really devoted to prayer. Not yet. We're going to be. But not right now. But those are our intentions. That's how we see ourselves. Nobody else sees us that way, but that's how we see ourselves. So we judge everyone else on their behavior, but we judge ourselves by our intentions, whether we ever act on those intentions or not. I want you to look again at Jesus' last words as he was here on earth. He gathers together these 11, which is the wrong number. Some of them are doubting, which is not enough faith. 
But he tells them, I want you to tell people about me. I want you to introduce me to other people. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples everywhere, of all people. I want you to baptize them. And I want you to teach them some more. But you're not going to be alone. I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. Again, where in your life have you been saying, not yet, to God? Well, maybe it's found right here in the Great Commission. Maybe we just read it. Go and make disciples. Well, I'm going to do that, but not right now. The truth is, I don't even know what that looks like. I'm not even sure what to do with that commandment. But, but I see myself as a disciple maker. Maybe you see yourself as a follower of Jesus, but you've never obeyed the command to be baptized. Now, we've been focusing on Acts 2.42 for months now, but Acts 2.42 is all predicated on what happens earlier in the book of Acts, right? That's where it's predicated. If if it doesn't happen in the first of the book, you know, the second chapter of Acts, then then Acts 2.42 doesn't make much sense. Remember, it's the day of Pentecost, and Peter stands up with the other apostles, and he tells this big crowd that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. You killed him. Your sins put him on the cross. They're cut to the heart, and they ask Peter, what do we do? And Peter tells them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them this promise is for you, it's for your children, for all of those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then Luke tells us in, in verse 40, with many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. But that was a long time ago, wasn't it? That was 2,000 years ago. And we all know times change. And we all know people change. Cultures change. Expectations change. Methods change. I don't have any problem with change. But the message never changes. The gospel never changes. The gospel is non-negotiable. What do we do? Repent. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you. Peter, could you make that a little more clear? (laughs) Repent and be baptized. Repent and, you know, I don't know how to make it more clear. That's what you do. Confess Jesus as Lord. And then go and make disciples. Baptize others. Teach others. Introduce others to Jesus. That's our gospel. That's what we teach. That's what we're commanded to do. That's what those first century Christians did. You know, if you've never done that, you need to ask yourself, what am I really waiting for? Why do I keep telling God, not yet? Oh, it's going to be a yes, but not yet. You know, Satan is so good at what he does, isn't he? He is so good at seducing us. 
He's so good at distracting us. He's so good at deceiving us into thinking that what I'm really telling God is yes. When I tell God, not yet. But that's not what we're telling God, is it? Now, of course, God says, ready or not, I want you to follow me. I get it, you're 11 I get it, you've got some doubts. But ready or not, I want you to follow me. Ready or not, I want you to step out on faith. Ready or not, I want you to love a little more. Ready or not, I want you to believe a little better. Ready or not, I want you to be devoted to what I'm saying here, to the apostles' teaching. I want you to be devoted to each other. Ready or not, I want you to be devoted to prayer. I want you to connect. I want you to volunteer. I want you to serve. I want you to share what you have. I want you to share what you know. I want you to explain how you've been blessed. Ready or not. I get it. In our humanness and our, our limitations, uh, we're not ready. But it's God who makes us ready. Amen. Jesus died on a cross to make us ready. Amen. This morning, would you tell God, ready or not, here I come. Let's stand and sing.